One of the aspects that you see about the South African ecosystem and the African system, the first thing we do is we think too small. <laughs> we don't tie enough zeros behind the numbers we're thinking of. The mindset here in Silicon Valley is nothing is impossible. Hi, I'm Hope. Welcome to the African Pre-Seed Podcast. As always, if you're a founder or investor keen on learning more about the African tech ecosystem, we've got you covered. And joining me is my co-host, Rajiv. Thanks, Hope. And hi to our listeners. So in this episode, we're talking about critical lessons that founders can apply in their own context, whatever that may be, and how the fundamentals of innovation actually haven't changed that much. Well, that and the Silicon Valley mindset. And with this in mind, we are also pleased to welcome onto the show Maria Bina, an advisor, ecosystem expert, and operating partner at Unicorn Growth Capital. Maria, originally from South Africa, which we're excited to hear about, is now based in the tech capital San Francisco and was part of the founding team at Vodacom in 1993. Maria, very, very warm welcome to the African Pre-Seed podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, and we're really looking forward to the conversation with you. Thank you, and love to say welcome to everyone listening in and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Before we get started, as a warm-up, we're going to just have a little game that we're going to play called... Rate this, rate this, rate this, rate this. Rajiv and I are going to go through six topics, and we're each going to rate them between one and five, with one being a meh. And five being more of that, please. Are you ready, Maria? I'm ready. <laughs> so the first one is Starlink. Four. Okay, quite bullish. All right. How about phone calls? I would rate that still a five. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. The Federal Reserve. Four. What about ecosystem regulation in Africa? I would put that at a three. Mine would be Noah Maria, you're being too generous. <laughs> <laughs> Startups partnering with corporates? Two. Okay. And let's keep it general. What about startup culture in general? Between a four and a five. That's why we're in the startup cultures, because it's so inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be worrying if it uh, was anything lower than that. So thanks for that, Maria. With that, let's get into it. As you said, we're all in the world of startups, working with incredible founders who come up with brilliant ideas and execute really well on those for the most part. However, what do you see as some of the gaps, even with, you know, with experienced founders, so gaps with emerging founders, experienced founders, things that you come across that you think founders often fail to address? Well, I mean, if I if I look at working with founders when they're looking at a fundraise strategy, one of the biggest gaps is typically talking too much about the product and not about their business. So especially when founders talk to investors, one of the key things that they need to focus on is why their business is valuable and not what their fluffy, blingy product is doing. So there's a big gap, I think, in the understanding on, on an investor mindset. If I, if I come back now to just the growth mindset of a startup, the thing I come across a lot is a very unclear value proposition. Now, that is the whole pivot of the business. And if you can't communicate that very clearly, 
you going to not get the right traction with either customers or potential funders. And uh, so I would say that's that's one of the, the largest gaps that I see. You referenced the growth mindset and the investor mindset. And when we're speaking to you prior to coming on to the podcast, you used the term the Silicon Valley mindset. Yes. Could you just elaborate on what you mean by that and in what ways is this relevant for African founders today operating within their own ecosystems on the continent and also for diaspora uh, individuals such as yourself located in Silicon Valley and obviously building and working within the tech ecosystem? So if you look at the Silicon Valley mindset, it's very innovative, it's very collaborative. So one of the aspects that you see about the mindset here in Silicon Valley and, and you know, also coming from the South African ecosystem and, and have been working now on the African system, the first thing we do is we think too small. <laughs> we don't tie enough zeros behind the numbers we're thinking of. So first of all, the mindset here is nothing is impossible and it can always be bigger. There's also a lot of aspects around collaboration in the community. So it's that explorative discovery side, which is very prevalent. You can feel it whenever you are in Silicon Valley. Everyone loves sharing ideas. Everyone loves talking about, you know, about new things and how they can help out. And that everyone loves to see how they can provide support. So it's that dynamics of also what Dr. Clay Christensen is talking about, about the DNA of an innovator, which makes this ecosystem and mindset, I think, uh, a mindset to, to look at how you can take some of those cultural learnings and, and add it into some of our ecosystems in Africa. It's an interesting point that you make. I'm just wondering, how much of that would you attribute to the startup environment itself versus the societal structures and environments that people grow up in in the two different worlds? Well, they, I, I believe there's quite a bit of the societal structures that is involved, especially if you have a, a culture where fear is deemed you need to fall on your sword. That is the first type of culture which will always stifle innovation. Versus like when you come to Silicon Valley, so first of all, it's quite a diverse culture. It's people from all over the world and failure is not deemed as a, a challenge. It's deemed as, well, what have you learned from it and, and how do you improve things? So it's in a way seen as a necessary step to get to the next successful step. And, and that's for me one of the key differentiations is if you're in a fear-based culture, you always stifle innovation. And stimulating your innovative disruptors in the market. I'm quite interested in how you made that transition and change in mindset, right? So obviously, you grew up in South Africa, although you were part of quite innovative businesses, which I'll chat to, to you about in a moment. But essentially, there is that fear-based way of viewing things and more like risk management versus when you get to Silicon Valley, it's about you can fail fast and there's nothing wrong with failing, right? What do you believe would need to happen to start embedding sort of that change in perception around fear on the continent? I'm just leveraging some of your personal experiences having grown up here. I would say I was quite fortunate in a in a way. You know, I was 
the first female engineer, the South African Post and Telecoms in those days, gave a bursary to to go study engineering in the country. <laughs> so, in a way, there were some pioneering things that that happened from you know being part of the first wave of of female engineers coming into the industry. And I was very fortunate to end up in the group that was headed up by Alan Notcraig. Now, a lot of it comes from leadership. And if leadership keeps on dominating that culture of fear, then you're not going to see anything happen. And one of the things I really appreciate from Alan Notcraig, which was one of my first learnings and, and stimulating, I suppose, me becoming an innovator, is he's, he had one comment, he says, if you make a mistake, that's fine. You need to figure out how to fix it and we'll help it. But if you make that same mistake again, <laughs> then you're in trouble. And because then obviously you <laughs> haven't learned. So Alan had that ability as a leader to really stimulate that type of thinking of let's try new things out and encouraging it, but also having a very collaborative and powerful way of how, okay, let's ask questions around these ideas and, and, and see where we can improve them as a group. And sometimes in team meetings, those, those conversations became quite passionate, to say the least. But we always came out with very clear ideas on what we wanted to do and what we wanted to execute on. And I think that was one of the key things on, on how do you bring in diverse opinions hone it into a structure that everyone can say, this is where we're pulling towards and then implementing that and then implementing it very fast ways. And that's also what we did with when we launched Vodacom, which is why Vodacom became, I think, the first carrier at the time to break even in 18 months with an average age of wow. a company of 28. <laughs> that's that's such an interesting point. And I want to I wanna pause there because... As Hope was mentioning, you were part of that founding team at Vodacom, which is, it's wild when we think about it because we associate Vodacom with being this big behemoth corporate. And, you know, you've seen the cycle of startup to growth to corporate. And, you know, speaking of being pioneers, Vodacom, I think at the time, were the pioneers of SMS and and, and this yep. was part of your team. And... SMS as a tool still continues to be a, a a tool for businesses to reach their customers, governments to reach us as citizens, and sort of everything in between. Now, part of that story is that SMSs and premium tier pri priced value added services actually arose out of constraints yeah. that were created at the time by regulators. Can you spend a minute just giving us that backstory and maybe talk to how founders can potentially see regulation as a driver of innovation instead of a hindrance? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, founders and innovation innovators always look at how they take constraints and friction out of out of a problem they're trying to solve, right? So when the mobile industry launched in South Africa, obviously the licenses got given, I think, in, in October, around about maybe a bit before that, to MTN and Vodacom. And then because there was also a transition in government, then things nearly got put on hold because of the transition in government. And there was conversations about more equity needed to be given to empowered groups, right, to to be co-investors and stakeholders in, in, the comp in the companies. And um, so that delayed things a little bit. The launch was targeted, I think, for April 
2000 and sorry 1994 and then we were constrained to also launch only I think between ourselves and MTN up to 60,000 people we couldn't sell directly that was a regulatory constraint so we had to establish a whole ecosystem of resellers of the mobile services and get them trained up. And then from June after the transition in government, we could actually then sell freely. And so with SMSs, one of the challenges there was at the time, premium rated phone calls had a huge amount of abuse and and fraud in, in South Africa. So the regulatory literally shut down any premium rated services. So we looked at how can we come up with a framework. So I had a lot of conversations with the regulator as well, how we can come up with a reasonable framework in how we can enable premium rated type services to be able to do, allow an ecosystem of innovators to utilize SMS for various needs. So obviously one of the first one I think was a lot of value added services related aspects, you know, advertising then came in later and that's still peer to Application to peer SMSs is still, as you say, growing globally. But yeah, it was how to put that framework in place, working quite closely with regulators to see what they were comfortable with. And then also we helped establish that framework with a regulator. And that's the thing that then stimulated it. Apart from that, it was also making it easy for people to onboard and, and companies to onboard how to utilize it or stimulate new value added service businesses that they could then quickly grow and scale using the platform. So you've got to have a bit of open innovation platform to allow people to get in your stack, have a framework of business rules, which is easy. So in a way, that was what became then the model for what all the stores like Apple and Nokia used, you know, the 70-30 split and how to manage that those rules at scale. And that's what helped grow the SMS aspect so fast. And, and that South Africa became the pivot point where this model became adopted globally. Wow, Maria, I think that is such an incredible story. And one of the things that stands out the most is just how you truly were part of a team that introduced a market-creating innovation, right? Because you talked about and extracted insights and shared insights around how you actually create ecosystems around your product. And then ultimately that influences sort of regulators and other stakeholders and becomes industry defining. For founders today who are trying to maybe introduce something that isn't widely adopted, it's a little bit ahead of their time, what advice would you give around how they can go about that market research process, right? and how they can extract sort of customer insights to make sure that they are introducing innovations that meet a required need, even if it might not be sort of something that comes top of mind for that time around what might be a big gap in society at the moment. Yeah, and, and you know, that's that's always, I, I think, the conundrum. So if you looked at, if we did any structured market research, even around SMS, if you went around and asked people, would they use this? Yeah. The answer would have been no, you know, it was seen as paging and I've already got a pager and stuff like that. You really need to find a what I would call a cornerstone application, which is something that people would use utilizing a capability like that. So in our case, the the cornerstone application was very simply voicemail notification. Right. So. Because, again, answering machines wasn't prevalent and now we were able to give a 
cloud-based answering machine to people, but how would you drive adoption of that? You had to notify them that there was a message waiting, and that's what stimulated the high adoption. So it's always how do you find that corner application? So it's like building a mall. It is to be the corner store, and then you start adding all the other things around that. And it's more about asking open questions around what's the problem you're trying to solve and then for whom and then who would really, who's got the biggest burning need um, to use that. I mean, if you even look at Facebook, right, Facebook started off as a dating platform for students, but then it grew quite quickly out into to other areas. So there's always what is that need and... In, in a lot of ways, people, if you just go ask the normal market research with, with new trending technologies, people don't understand it. They don't know how to use it. So make it simple for them to come up with an application of how it's utilized. And, and that's what's driving adoption. So, Maria, you are, as you said, one of the first or the first scholarship, a young lady from Tux University in Pretoria all the way to Silicon Valley. So your career has, and I'm guessing, has been incredibly exciting. You've seen the ups and downs of this market. And, you know, without giving away your age, you've seen quite <laughs> a lot. For example, your your experience at Vodacom even predated the existence of ISPs in, in South Africa. And I'm sure along the way, you would have received both good and bad advice. So if you could maybe spend a minute <laughs> just sharing the best and worst pieces of advice you've heard along that journey. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as I say, coming back to, to Alan around, you know, because when, when you look at the DNA of an innovator and it's a culture that you need to create in, in a company, these five key skills. And that's why I say when Alan was like, OK, we allow you to make a mistake, so which means failures not seem as a disaster but something to build upon. That was, I think, one of the biggest aha moments. But again, tying it in with the building a culture of innovation, you need five key things. You need, obviously, a safe environment. If you have a high bullying culture or you guys just, you know, need to, to do what I tell you to do type leadership mentality, you stifle innovation right there because you're not allowing for the ability for critical questioning. Now, critical questioning is a skill that I would say anyone should learn as much as they can because that helps start bringing in the power of association, which only comes when you come into collaborating and getting more diverse perspectives in and then having a safe place for, you know, networking and, and experimenting. So if you don't create as a leader that safe platform for experimenting, you're not, not going to get anywhere. Some of the worst types of advice, and, 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 and I think in a, in a for as a female technologist and, and early on, and even now still, I think getting more women into executive roles, it's that there is this understanding of, okay, there's this perceived glass ceiling. <laughs> now, I call it a perceived glass ceiling and, and how you're supposed to, to navigate that. At the end of the day, you really need to see it as the perception. The biggest thing that can help even women expand in corporate careers is you need to understand the concept of executive sponsorships because it's an executive sponsor is not the same as a mentor. Women tend to look at mentors. We need to understand executive sponsors. And again, I was very fortunate 
that I had executive sponsors like Alan Notcraig and others, which helped, you know, where they had this trusted relationships, understanding your value and then basically pulling you up. And and that's something is how do you build those trusted relationships of, of showcasing? Because again, I came from an environment, women were not supposed to be engineers, but, um, and how you can navigate that to start building that circles of trust. So some of the worst uh, advice was around, oh, this is a glass ceiling, you know, you're never going to crash through it. And no, mm. um, so it's a lot to do about how you change that mindset. I think one of the things that is just interesting to have a discussion with you on is just about the role that telecommunications has played on the continent as it's provided the backbone upon which a lot of African innovation has been built. And I know now, just even my experience working with a number of different portfolio companies, everybody dreams of a major deal with the telco and a bank, because obviously there's large scale distribution that a telecommunications company can provide. What should African founders and maybe founders more broadly know about telecommunication companies and what do they often misunderstand about the nature upon which they work to be able to understand the core value proposition that they could bring and ultimately unlock that distribution channel? So I think one of the key, like working with any large corporate, whether it's a bank, whether it's a telco. So obviously, both these entities give you very wide reach into your potential target market. And I remember when I was uh, CIO at at uh, I used to get a lot of startups also <laughs> coming my way who want to sell me the app and please embed this in in the phones. And and I always had the first question I had is well, I'm here to build my business, not yours. So what's the value of your business for me that I need to help you do these things? And you know, and then it was always a very generic you know, drive ARPUs or whatever answer. So it's it's really a, a, a founders need to understand where they add value. And second of all, when you're dealing with large entities like this, we set up the operational platforms that can help you scale. You're still the one responsible of how you're going to utilize that channel. And what I see with a lot of founders, they just think, oh, I do now this big deal with whether it's a telco or bank and now I'm going to hit things big time, unless you have a clear marketing strategy, unless you have a clear way in how you manage that relationship with that large corporate, you're not going to be successful in really leveraging the value from it. And um, so in some cases, it still means you're going to have to do your own advertising campaigns and things. And as I say, the large companies have set up, and, and I think Telco was leading on how to set up that open innovation entry allowing the ecosystem to to leverage the capabilities of the telcoms, telcos in a better way than obviously banks have. Uh, I can see it with some banks. I think uh, Access Bank in, in, in Africa is doing a wonderful job on, on how to stimulate that ecosystem. But yeah, understand you're dealing with a big, large operational entity and that can help you scale, but they are not the ones responsible for your growth and your business. I'd I'd be really really keen to get your thoughts on this concept of network effects. It's something that we come across all the time, and it's something that everyone strives to to benefit from and embed in a in a core value yeah. proposition. Just from your perspective and from what you've seen in different parts of the world, 
how important is it, and maybe even by contrasting what you see in Silicon Valley versus what you've seen on the African continent, how do you advise founders to think about network effects and, and, and network marketing? With network effects, obviously, it, it also depends on the industry that, that you're focusing on. So obviously, if it's direct-to-consumer, network effect plays a huge part in that. If you're in a space where you say doing a lot of large-scale enterprise deep tech or enterprise tech platforms, there your approach is still very much building relationships and, and how you can get yourself visible. So network effects is important for that founder to understand how they will build that network effect relating to the type of area they're in. So marketplaces depend highly on network effects. When we as investors also look at, say, marketplace platforms or direct-to-consumer, then that's one of the things we like to see if that founder understand how they're going to build that network effect. So it could be with incentives. It could be with people love it so much. I mean, TikTok is a great example of how they were able to generate network effects. So founders should go and look at some of these models and look at how they can apply some of those models of how some of these companies that's been very successful at building network, uh, driving network and, and through network effects and growth and how they can apply those models in the market spaces they're in and just try different things. You know, we had a stage in technology where it's very quick to get feedback if something is working or not. So be able to pivot very quickly through that. Just very quickly on that. So as an investor, if I'm a founder and I come to you and and I try to articulate that my solution has the potential to to benefit from network effects, are there any tools that you've developed in assessing whether I'm onto something or not at an early stage? I don't think one can ever put a a tool in place to, to try and assess whether an entrepreneur would be successful or not. So the, the key thing also from Unicorn Growth is we're also helping to open doors. So a lot of investors try and open doors to enable these founders to, to get connected into the right type of channels that they're looking at. So understanding your distribution channels, understand what that is, any type of data that you may have had of things that you've tried to prove that you basically starting to see a potential network effect taking place. These are very valuable things for us to look at. So we always tend to ask more open questions around how they look at it and how they do that. And and if it's too generic, then obviously that that's that's not a good, good thing. So founders need to be very clear on what they've and use their data points. So many times I have founders talking to you that very generically talk about their products and services and not getting into the data points that they have. And you always seem to have to drag that out. Now, patient investors would do that. Impatient investors will just step onto the next opportunity to invest in. I think, Maria, it's interesting. We are based on opposite sides of the world, but it seems like we have similar insights on just where founders could improve and sort of how they can strengthen just how they speak the investor language, right, and help investors just assess. 
thank you once again for joining us on today's show and sharing your knowledge. I wish we could keep picking your brain, but unfortunately, <laughs> all good things must come to an end. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, always here yeah, and happy to have further conversations. I have an uncle in Durban who has this famous line that he uses at the end of every party and he says, all good things must come to a, and then he pauses and he says, continuation instead of uh, <laughs> an end. So in, in my uncle's words, in, in that spirit, let us continue the conversation by asking our listeners to also get involved. Tell us how you're thinking about your go-to-market strategies, your network effects, your product market fit, and how you think about customer acquisition strategies by partnering with corporates or, or, or the incumbents. So please send us your thoughts at uh, hello at africanpreseed.com. But that's it for now. So catch you on the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.